Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast, the show dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, and history. I'm your host, Michael. Today I'm joined by... Corey from Edmonton. This is our 15th episode, and we're discussing the romance of Eustace the Monk, a 13th century vernacular French verse romance that not many people know about. interesting thing about this verse romance is that it's based on the life of a real person. Eustace the monk was indeed a monk. He was born around 1170. By the time his life ended in 1217, he was a pirate, which is uh, quite the twisty career if you try and connect one dot to the no other. No kidding. That's, that's a bit of a leap. We do know quite a bit about his life, especially his pirating ventures, thanks to records in England. We also have this romance that we're going to talk about, which actually glosses over the parts of his life that we know the most about and tends to focus on stuff that's completely made up, which is, which is the usual way of things with medieval romances based on historical figures. Which is interesting if you think about it, because the real stuff that happened to a lot of these individuals is way crazier than anything writers can make up, mm-hmm. and I'm guessing this is one of those cases. So the historical Eustache was born in Boulogne, in Corsay, near Boulogne, sometime near 1170. He became a monk at Samar after his travels, and it was probably northern Italy, a Benedictine with a black robe. He left the monk life after his father's death, maybe to get into a dispute over his inheritance, maybe to demand justice of his father's killer. In that time, he became a seneschal to Reynaud de Damartin around 1203. Then he was discharged, probably because the other barons didn't like him. He fled Reynaud and ended up taking to sea, becoming a pirate in the employ of King John, and then proceeded to plunder the English coasts as well as the French coasts after becoming the scourge of the Channel Isles. Switch sides many times in that point of his life until he became admiral of King Philip II's fleet, leading an invasion of England. And in the famous Battle of Sandwich in 1217, he was trying to flee because the battle had turned south for him. They caught up to him, took his ship, found him hiding in the hold, and beheaded him. I'm guessing beheaded him without much ceremony, like on-the-spot beheaded him type thing. Oh no, they recognized him right away and said, we're getting rid of this guy. Okay, so there was no trial or anything like that? No, no. It was right there on the deck. How very medieval. Yeah. (laughs) So he was, at the time, very famous. He was kind of the preeminent pirate figure for quite a while, a few centuries after he died. You don't really hear about him much now, though, in that... Other pirates have kind of supplanted his position as the premier pirate. Um, I guess my big question would, would be, though, do people not know as much about him now, or do people not know as much about him now in English-speaking countries? Because as you pointed out, this is a medieval French poem, so the chances of it kind of surviving into a popular modern English audience aren't that big to begin with. True, even though English chroniclers did kind of make a big deal about him in the centuries following his activities. Okay. 
at least in historical texts that were available at the time. And he does, he's not a figure of pop culture significance like uh, quote-unquote historical figures like Robin Hood, who also had ballads written about them. Not a historical figure for real, though. Yes, <laughs> that's thus the quotes. <laughs> so the romance was composed between 1223 and 1284, so a few decades after Eustace had died, and by that time apparently a huge amount of legends got attached to Eustace's career. There are two English translations available, or at least complete ones, that I know of. There's an earlier one by Glyn S. Burgess, which is the one I read the first time in undergrad, and which is very good. And then there's one available online by ShopCow, which I'm going to link to in the show notes so that you can follow along if you want to, which I found a little bit clunkier, and I think that's the one that you read. Yeah, that would be the one I read. Um, yeah, clunky. It is a little wooden it's interesting in context. I f- or, sorry, I found it interesting in the context of other medieval outlaw stories, but on its own. And I, I'm going to chalk this up to the tra- quality of the translation. I didn't find it that good. Yeah, these are both prose translations of a verse work, and the verse style of this short romance is kind of famously difficult to translate. So I'm not going to lay it too badly on Shop Cow for being a little bit more awkward with her English renderings because it's not an easy, not an easy romance to translate into English. But okay, fair enough. But the S. Burgess one I found flows really easily, which is why I fell in love with it as an undergrad. I think has a lot to do with his own translation skills as well in this case. There are no English verse translations that I'm aware of. And I would assume this is because it would be so hard to do. (laughs) So we're going to dive right into the romance now, in that we start off with Eustace going to Toledo to talk to the devil. (laughs) Now this is kind of an odd part in that the historical Eustace did have some association with sorcery in later chronicles, in that in the sea battles, it was thought he was a great sorcerer who made his ship invisible, and that's why he was such a good pirate, and so forth. None of that actually figures in the romance. Um, We start off with Eustace going to Toledo, which was considered a center of magical learning at that time. He learns necromancy and various other magical techniques while in a cave from the devil, The devil makes a prophecy that he's going to die at sea. And then the author builds up Eustace as a great necromancer, the greatest necromancer who ever lived. And he uses this necromancy to play a few tricks and then never uses it again. Yeah, I noticed that too. It's like there's all the stuff about magic that doesn't come in at all into the greater narrative. And the stock figure of the clerical necromancer was popular in the 12th and 13th centuries. This is when that figure was solidifying into a common stereotype. It was often used in exempla in medieval sermons and so on. So it's not surprising that a Benedictine like Eustace would get the reputation as a sorcerer and that it would appear in a romance like this, because the Benedictines were the ones who had the strongest reputation for clerical magic. 
So you can chalk it up to that, but it is very odd that he goes out from Toledo, comes back to France to stay at Samer, basically just makes some monks fart, causes some trouble while he's in the monastery for the abbot. I think there's another good point that's worth making right now in that I realize this is a couple hundred years before Puritanism existed, but the modern perception is that the Middle Ages were like the golden age of puritanical thought. They really weren't. I mean, they were crude on a level that modern audiences would be offended by. Um, oh, yeah. Part- There's lots of... I don't know. I think the shop cow translation kind of flattens it out a bit. But some of the most vulgar stuff that I've read is in this romance in the Glyn S. Burgess translation. Nice. Yeah, but, like, I mean, uh, fart jokes, sex jokes, um, jokes about sexual organs. Like, these were commonplace. They weren't, oh, you know, there's one or two on occasion. That was just kind of a light thing that you threw into a work on occasion. Like, it, it wasn't... Yeah, just some funny ha-ha moments, essentially. <laughs> uh, for examples from this text, immediately when he arrives in France, he goes to an inn at Montferrand. He's overcharged for the meal by the innkeeper's wife, so he basically starts a giant orgy to humiliate the innkeeper's wife and everyone in the town, I guess. Yeah, that's a little excessive, isn't it? He makes it so they waste all their wine that he was overcharged on. In in Glynas Burgess, he pulls the spigots out. In the Shop Cow translation, I think he bursts the iron bands on the The wine barrels. Hmm. Yeah, or at least makes the people there burst them. Hmm. Either way, all their wine spilled out. People start taking off their pants, and they have a merry time of it. Eustache returns after they kind of clue into this and start chasing after him, but then he causes another brawl. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of a common theme in this work, is that Eustache gets chased, something clever happens, he gets away, the people chasing him are embarrassed. He is very much a trickster figure here. Yeah. Because we start with this kind of very odd, giant prank that he pulls. Next, he cheats a carter out of money, or at least it's not him. This is another odd part of this episode, is that there's another old monk with him who's casting spells on his behalf. (laughs) Somebody else is doing most of the magic at this point. (laughs) Anyway, after that delightful strange episode. He goes to the monastery. He turns a pig into a hag, among other things, while he's there. Uh, He turns himself into a chimera, for some reason, to make other monks fart. I don't know if the Shop Cow translation has that part or not. I don't think it does. No, that doesn't sound familiar. Yeah, in the Glyn S. Burgess translation, it says that's specifically why he does it. Okay. To be fair, I was a little... I think... Sorry, I was a little tired when I read the first part of this, so there are some details early on I'm a little fuzzy on. I think part of the reason why I take into this text so well when I was an undergrad is that I'd never encountered something that started off this crazily before. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of goes all over the place with just weird and vulgar stuff happening in quick succession. Anyway, by the end of his time in the Abbey, he has tricked everyone to leave, gambled away all the riches, and basically they want nothing to do with him. And then he hears that his father has died, so he leaves, never to be a monk again, never to return. 
and this will bring us into the Eustace the Outlaw phase of his life, which takes up the majority of the medieval romance and is also the part of his life that is completely undocumented in any records and probably didn't happen. So, to inaugurate the story of Eustace the Outlaw, we're going to talk a bit about the medieval literary outlaw tradition, which includes the most famous figure, Robin Hood, but we also have other outlaw tales, such as Fook Fitzwarren, Clem of Clow, Arne Bowbender, Harward the Wick, William Wallace, and they all share a lot in common, a lot of stock mini-narratives that get fitted together into these greater stories of famous outlaws at the time. That's your cue to come oh, in, Corey. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, most of my experience as far as medieval outlaws go is Robin Hood. Um, again, not a historical figure, even though a lot of people like to think he was. The medieval outlaw is a fairly complex figure in that you've got a lot of stories about them. And again, even just using Robin Hood as a case study. The stories we have share common elements, but they're clearly not written by the same authors. And at the same time, there's very clearly this element that they're not actually connected. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, I think Robin Hood dies in like three of the stories at least. So, I mean, the elements kind of get recycled and go forward and then they reappear, but they're not, it's not like medieval outlaw stories form this coherent chronology of events. Um, yeah, again, very multifaceted figure, had a very big role. Um, worth mentioning, another common misconception is that Robin Hood was kind of a peasant figure, a peasant hero. Um, at least as far as the English tradition is concerned, peasants were illiterate. We do not have a single written document prepared by a peasant. Every piece of writing we have comes from some educated person, so a clergyman, a noble, somebody who had a bit of wealth. But at the same time, while they weren't written by peasants, a lot of, midi a lot of outlaw stories kind of represent a form of social protest speaking for the peasants. You've got this, you know, yeoman, which not really a peasant by modern standards, but medieval nobility would have considered them to be one, but you've got a yeoman rising up, stirring up all this trouble, usually because there's something wrong in the land. The lord is corrupt, the sheriff's a jackass, something needs to be fixed. Um, but again, with Robin Hood specifically, there's kind of this interesting notion that the king is usually a good guy. No matter how bad his representatives are, the king is always good. And again, in Eustache, that's obviously not the case. They play with that a little bit. But the outlaw is very much a form of social protest. It's giving voice to certain issues that might either be ignored or that people aren't paying enough attention to or that maybe just need a little more voice. Yeah, and a lot of outlaw figures are commoners, at least starting in this time period. Now, our earliest, at least English, outlaw narratives are about noblemen. But by the time you get to the Robin Hood ballads or even Eustace the Monk, the cast the social station of the outlaw character is broadened quite a bit. Part of the problem with social standing is in, in medieval thought, um, medieval thinkers divided society into three rigid divides. It didn't actually work this way in reality, but they were adamant in their own heads that it did. You've got the clergy, the nobility, and the peasantry. And you are part of your social status, and that's it. I mean, peasants and nobles can join the clergy... Peasants can be knighted, that kind of thing, but that's it. There's still the rigid divides between them. Um, but a lot, like I said, a lot of peasant figures are in kind of this weird gray area known as a yeoman, 
who were wealthy, who had education, who had status, but they weren't nobles. So the only thing they could be, as far as the medieval worldview, was a peasant, even though they were very clearly much higher than what the peasants had. Outlaws kind of mediate between social classes at this point, in that you can have someone who starts out with lowly beginnings, triumphing over much richer, more noble figures in the course of their outlaw career. Mm -hmm. And end up being raised to knighthood in many cases at the end of their outlaw tale. Or being offered some kind of reward. Um, what's interesting about, again, Eustache is not a good example of this, but some outlaw tales, um, you've often got an outlaw who's a very virtuous figure. Um, I forget which ballad it is specifically, but one of the Robin Hood stories, Robin Hood's offered all this money, wealth, land, blah, blah, blah at the end. And he kind of lives the life for a little while, and then he realizes that, you know what, I don't like this. I'm going to go back to the forest and take care of this little shrine to the Virgin Mary, because that's a good, noble, virtuous life, and I like that better. And again, what what separates Eustache from a lot of these outlaw narratives is that, very specifically, Eustache is not a nice guy. <laughs> and we'll get to that by the end of the poem. Uh, he does share a lot in common with other figures in the stories that happen to him and his characteristics of being witty and clever, using disguises, and so forth. Being a trickster. Himself, yeah, he himself is not a virtuous person. <laughs> no. And this might just be the memory of the historical figure in that he was a fairly notorious pirate. <laughs> so at least when we start off on his outlaw career, he is on a virtuous mission in that Hanfois de Heresingen has murdered his father... So he comes to the court of Reynaud to demand justice. They have a judicial duel. Hanfois refuses to fight because he's too old to do it. Uh, Eustache refuses to fight because he's still, still a priest at that point, or at least has just come out of the priesthood, and he also thinks that this is a sham. The two younger people take this up. Hanfois wins the judicial duel. And that's the end of this segment, because for some reason afterwards, Reynaud takes on Eustache as his seneschal and puts him in charge of all his accounts. But then Hanfois is always in the background, kind of moving things around and saying that Eustache has caused fraud and is doing all the stuff behind Reynaud's back. And in the end, Reynaud is going to take Eustache to trial. Eustache says... I'm not going to do that. This is fixed. So he goes off into the forest and becomes an outlaw. Yes, and then all of the crazy antics start. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of these stock moments that are very characteristic of outlaw narratives in the Middle Ages. The merchant who keeps his money because he says exactly how much he has and doesn't lie about it. And... Shortly afterwards, an abbot loses all his money because he says he has a lot less money than he actually has on him. This is a very common, very common story when you hit upon various romances about outlaws. Mm -hmm. The other part is the importance of disguise, and oh man, does Eustace use a lot of disguises in this story. Yeah, no kidding. Um, another common one, too, is generally messing with authority figures. Um... I think it's the Count or the Duke. I don't know how many times Eustache steals horses from him as this goes on. Oh, yeah. He steals... Like, I, I actually lost count. The prize horse of Reno once. 
but then he leaves it behind, and then he steals it again, and he steals other horses, and he encounters Reno over and over again in various disguises, and the the romance even plays with this, and the other people around Reno are like, no, that's Eustace, arrest him, arrest him now. But then other people in the party will go, no, that's my buddy, whoever, or I recognize that guy, he's not Eustace. And at one point, Eustache says, while he's sitting at Reno's table, oh, well, a lot of people look alike. Yeah, I, I just love how blasé he is about it, how offhanded. Um, again, you mentioned Eustache as being a trickster figure, and he very much is. I mean, he's it's one of my favorite archetypes, although Eustache is not necessarily a nice trickster. Most of the poem, especially or most of the story, especially the outlaw portion, is literally just him pranking people. I mean, we touched on a few examples, but it's just episode after episode after episode of him being a total jerk and pranking these idiots. There is the common, even the disguises are common ones in outlaw narratives, not just the use of disguises, because we have a ballad about Robin Hood and the Potter. Yeah, I remember that one. He swapped clothes with the Potter, and Eustace also swaps clothes with the potter after swapping clothes with the charcoal burner, which is another common one for outlaw narratives to take on. In this case, it's a very long chain of disguises where he does this, which kind of gets ridiculous and also kind of epic. I, just, I think um, I, I think that's meant to be comedic, though. I mean, oh, there yeah, are, definitely. the writer, whoever wrote this, because we don't actually know the author, do we? No, he, we don't know who okay. it was. We have one one surviving manuscript, and it's not attributed to him. Okay, yeah. Whoever wrote this is very clearly playing with the audience a little bit and just having a few cheap laughs. It's like, oh, and then he did this, and then he did... Like, it's very slapstick, actually. And it just mm-hmm. does kind of work, but it is still very slapstick. And then you have that set against another part of these medieval stories, which we tend to find kind of uncomfortable, in that the level of cruelty is unusually high. <laughs> I, we, we find this in Ro- the Robin Hood stories, too. If you remember Robin Hood and the guy of Gisborne, when he cuts off Gisborne's head and then mutilates it. Yeah, not... Oh. And that doesn't seem like something a hero would do, but at the time, it's like, well, that's just how life is. Well, part of it is that's how life is. Part of it is that's always the kind of thing the protagonist does to an antagonist. In the case of Guy of Gisborne, um, he's very much part of the Robin Hood mythos. He shows up a couple times. He's kind of Robin Hood's big rival, and he's a very sneaky, devious bastard who tries to, you know, harm this noble hero. And so it's kind of a karmic thing. I mean, obviously, it's a Christian context, not a Hindu one, but the same idea, basically. He was bad, so he got what was coming to him. So for the case of Eustace, we have bits where... He takes revenge because some of his party had their eyes cut out by cutting off people's feet. There's a moment that's played for comedy where he cuts off a kid's tongue, and the kid tries to say that Eustace did it but can't because his tongue is gone, and this is supposed to be funny, but it doesn't come across that way. Yeah, no, from our perspective, this is just a horrible act of cruelty and or child abuse. Yeah, and there's a really terrible moment midway through where there were coming towards actually the end of the outlaw portion, where he has these two children that he's raised up to be his spies. And one of them betrays him to Raynaud, and the other kid sees this and tells Eustace. So Eustace makes the child hang himself. 
Yeah. Which is kind of crazy. This is like horror movie fodder, and yet this is technically considered a comedic work. So I, I mean, it is it is playing off these moments against each other, and I think it's done deliberately, but it still comes across as really odd to us in modern times reading it, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair assessment. But coming off of that, I do want to talk about my favorite disguise that Eustache assumes, and this is the moment I usually tell people about if I talk about this romance, is when Eustache dresses up as a prostitute. <laughs> Wow, I... Lures one of Raynaud's men into the forest and then says, turns on him when his own merry band of outlaws, not very merry, surround this guy. This section has so much swearing in it, you wouldn't believe. I mean, again, what we consider profanity is not necessarily the same, but you, you translate it to a modern audience as well. So anyway, this goes on. I would say it does get a bit wearying after a while, the amount of disguises in this segment, because there's almost too many, and it drags on for maybe a bit too long. Yeah, I, I had a hard time following it a, a little bit. And then notably, he does not use any magic in this segment when it might have been the most useful. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's again, it's very odd, because... It spends all this time at the beginning building up how great he is with magic, only to never have it have any impact on the story ever again. Anyway, near the end, Reyno finally does capture Eustache, sends him to the king, but then, because he can't execute him on the spot because some of his barons are kind of like, ah, we kind of like Eustache, or we at least agree that there is an injustice done to him. So he sends him to the king, and then some of these barons who are on Eustache's side rescue him on the way to Paris. And then Eustace goes to England! Where he meets King John, who wasn't exactly the most popular of monarchs. And this is kind of odd in this segment, because this is the most interesting part of Eustace's life historically, and also the most confusing in that his loyalty switched multiple times, and he got people angry on both the French and English sides. In the romance, it's very straightforward. Yeah, is it any wonder people wanted to kill this guy in real life? Yeah, he was quite simply a bastard when you read about exactly what was going on in his pirate days, because he was serving on John's side initially, but then he would plunder English ports as well as plundering French ships. <laughs> I don't, yeah, that, that's interesting. Why would you plunder the ports you need to go to to sell your plunder? I don't get that, but... He was very much on his own side, I think, at this point. Yeah, that's probably a fair assessment. So he does actually assume a disguise in order to get the king's favor, and that he dresses up like a hospitaller in the romance and says he wants to serve... Eustache is coming and wants to serve King John, and King John says, yeah, great idea, for whatever reason, because in this romance he hasn't really been at sea at all. But King John gives him 30 galleys. Yeah, well, the other part of it, too, is, again, this is very different literary style. You never really understand John's motivation for accepting Eustache into his service. It's like Eustache shows up, it's like, hey, I want to serve you. John's like, hey, awesome. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Well, there is an earlier segment in the poem where he did earn the enmity of King Philip for killing some of Philip's knights. But that's really about it. I guess his 
in this romance, his tales of outlaw trickery were, got all the way to England, and John was pretty impressed by them, I guess. Again, that's getting a little metatextual and making assumptions on our part, but I would chalk that up to literature as being different than we understand it. It serves a different function, it's prepared in a different way, it's presented in a different way, so while we might say, okay, that's odd to a medieval audience, this is just, oh, that's just how a story works. Also, it might be a case of let's get on with it. There is that too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and in this segment we get to see Eustace as a mighty warrior who uses an axe to very good effect. He does a raid up the Seine on Cadoc, the Seneschal of Normandy, kind of leads them out with another disguise, gets them stuck in a bog, and then pulls his ships through because the ships were being blocked by Cadoc. And we don't actually know if this raid happened or not. It's it's kind of up in the air. <laughs> but that's really the only major episode of his pirate life that's narrated in this romance. The rest is kind of glossed over. It says he went to the Channel Isles and burned everything down and brought them back under John's control. Um, why he's in Normandy is because King John lost Normandy in an earlier battle and was trying to recapture it in case anyone was born. Yeah, um, something else that's kind of forgotten in modern period. Prior to the era of King John, England wasn't a little island. England was an empire. It actually stretched well into what we would consider modern-day France. Yeah, you know, King Richard was there before him. Basically, all the money in the treasury was lost by King Richard. Yeah. <laughs> the Lionheart, King John inherited no money in his coffers. Uh, he wanted to maintain the empire that was in Aquitaine, that was inherited from Henry, but wasn't able to, and thus got the title John Lackland behind his back later on. Yeah, no, um... Part of that might be dealing with untrustworthy pirates, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's worth noting, King John, probably inept, um, he does get shafted by history in that he probably wasn't as evil a bastard as people like to think he was. I'm not saying he was a nice guy, I'm just saying he probably wasn't the pure evil figure we think of him as. Yeah, there was a period where they tried to rehabilitate King John as a good administrator and doing the best with the situation he had at hand, which... All things considered, yeah, he did not he did not get a very good start to his reign. But in other ways, he did some pretty stupid things. And we would probably consider one of those hiring Eustache. Yeah. And why? Because in this narrative, Reynaud comes to England and buddies up with King John, and Eustache goes, well, screw this, and goes back to France and declares loyalty to King Philip. King Philip makes him admiral of his navy for an invasion of England. Which basically brings us to the end of the story. <laughs> yeah, big battle, Eustache dies. Considering the fact that this podcast is being recorded in English, I think it's fair to say how that invasion went. It is interesting the description of using lime in the romance to blind the Eustache's Ah, yeah. That's another one of those... This is an actual an actual technique that was used in medieval warfare, so I did think that was kind of neat that it made its way in. Well, yeah, again, this is another one of those things that we as a modern audience consider quite brutal and excessive, but 
medieval warfare didn't subscribe to the notion of rules. Again, chivalry was kind of a thing, but it wasn't nearly as influential as modern audiences think. It's not like you'd say, we shall be gentlemen on the battlefield. You basically just killed, maimed, and destroyed your enemy, because that's what you had to do. This romance, like most of the romance, tries to soften up this bit as well, in that Eustace faces off the 20 galleys coming from England, and there's a big fight, and he fights bravely, and it's only this line trick that finally gets him captured. Whereas in the historical accounts that we have, the battle was lost and Eustace was trying to escape. <laughs> and his end was fairly... Not, not a hero's end like this romance tries to make it out to be. Again, I'm still confused why this romance tries to make him a hero, to be perfectly honest. So, Anyway, Eustache is beheaded as in history in this romance, and we end with the line, No one who is always intent on evil can live for a long time. Which I think we need to ponder over in a conversation. Yeah, it's... <laughs> It is a very strange ending, because the ending flat out acknowledges that this guy was not a nice person, in which case oh, it's a, in which case it's a cautionary tale, which I'm fine with had you spent the entire story making him an unsympathetic character. But for most of it, the, the poem tries to get our sympathy behind Eustache, so it doesn't make sense. You can't have somebody you like and then suddenly say, oh, they're bastards, so here's your cautionary moral. Like, there's a very big contradiction there. Well, there are some articles that try and characterize the narrator as being ambivalent towards Eustache and kind of admiring his cleverness and so on. I don't buy that. Also trying to show how terrible he is. Again, I that's not something I agree with. I think there's open admiration expressed by the narrator here. Well, I think I think mostly because it's saying, look at this hilarious stuff that happened, is acting out in comedy sequences up to this point. Another possibility, and I have absolutely zero evidence before me to support this, but this is just knowledge of the Middle Ages at work. I'm assuming the manuscript copy of this we have, there's no indication one way or another if that was the original, correct? So for all we know, just because it's all in one person's handwriting doesn't mean they're the one person who wrote it, and doesn't mean there weren't multiple people making changes and edits to earlier versions. Like, it it could very easily have been, somebody wrote this, all of these humorous episodes, and then somebody added the death at the end and the moral, because for whatever reason, they didn't like Eustache, or they thought he wasn't very good, or they knew their history a little better. That is entirely possible. Now, again, I don't know if that's the case here, because I don't have any evidence to support that, but it is a possibility. Kind of like what happened with Beowulf, am I right? <laughs> yep, Beowulf's a good example. Um, oh, geez, I'm sure. uh, the Romance of the Rose, another perfect example. Um, in that case, we know who the two authors were, but we do know for sure there were two authors. Uh, Chrétien de Troyes, or de Troyes, however you'd pronounce it. Uh, one of his romances, I believe it was... Ganolin, but don't quote me on that. Um, again, he didn't finish it. He died before finishing it, and there are dozens, if not hundreds, of other authors who tried to afterwards. So this is a very common technique used in the Middle Ages. So I think now that we've wrapped up the romance, I would like to talk about why I like this so much, because I'm on record as saying this is one of my favorite medieval romances that I've read. 
Uh, it's kind of crazy. It's really vulgar. It has a kind of joyous element to the narrative in that it revels in Eustache playing all these tricks while also acknowledging that maybe he's not the nicest person in the world. And it's attractive to me because it is so messy. This isn't this isn't the kind of staid courtly text that we attribute to medieval romances, at least in the 19th century, how they were presented as, which is the idea that we've inherited. Mm -hmm. It's very much a low comedy. There's a lot of medieval writing has that in it. And this is one of the first times that I encountered that. And it's not really that apparent if you keep to the usual Latin texts that are being propagated around them. But when you move into the vernacular, this is very much a common, a representative sample of what you might encounter studying that and looking through the literature of the time. Mm -hmm. And I know it's not perfect. I know some translations are better than others. It drops narrative threads basically all the time. Some of it doesn't make much sense. But I love it anyway. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I like this piece academically just because I like all of the elements. We, I mean, everything we just talked about, we barely scratched the surface. There's a lot of other things we can go into, I'm sure. So I like it from that perspective. As a story, not my favorite romance, probably, I mean, not my favorite medieval text. Part of that could be due to the translation I read not being the greatest, but I, I can see the merit in it. I mean, there are some enjoyable sequen sequences. There are some fun little parts. I think I'd recommend it. I just don't know that I would say it would be my strongest recommendation. And just moving on to the broader scene here, it does a good job of showing the cavalier approach to history in the Middle Ages and how retellings were done. And that this isn't that long after Eustace died. And already his, he's got all these stock elements that have attached to him and mutated his story almost beyond recognition. <laughs> well, a good modern comparison, really. Um, one that comes to mind for me, Al Capone. I mean, this idea is still... Or we still see this at work with real figures. I mean, Al Capone was a gangster. If you ever read the actual history there, it's interesting, but it's not nearly as extensive or as elaborate or as involving as many gunfights as the Hollywood version we're used to makes it out to be. Um, I think another part of that, too, is the Middle Ages had a much more fluid view of history than we do. Um, you you can find historic, or excuse me, not historical, you can find medieval romances about Alexander the Great. And there are these great fictional stories full of blood and battles and magic and all this other stuff. And he was a historical figure. Likewise, you can find very historical, deadpan, serious narratives written about completely fictional people who are treated as if they were real. Indeed, the amount of medieval texts about Merlin and his prophecies is kind of staggering. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that brings us to the end of this podcast, and we'll wrap up with some final thoughts on medieval romance, specifically from you, Corey. Oh, jeez. Um... I, to put you on yeah, I would say this is not representative of a normal romance. The problem with that statement is there is no such thing as a normal romance. You mentioned the 19th century idea of like the chivalric knights in armor and damsels notion of a romance that we have. But that's hardly all a romance is. At its base level, a romance is an adventure story. Um... 
more positive ones or happier ones follow the hero's journey. You go out, you come back, you gain knowledge, you help your community. But by no means do all romances, all adventures need to follow that stock narrative. I mean, this is a perfect example of one that doesn't. So it's a typical example in that there is no typical example. So, you know, it's a good place to start, I guess. Yep. And if you're interested in medieval outlaw narratives beyond Robin Hood, I think this is a good place to look as well. I'd say it's a good starting place. Um, yeah, it's pretty a pretty good representation of the stock elements you might come across, and that they're all they're all in there, just jammed together one after the other. Mm-hmm. One thing I think that is worth keeping in mind, though, is while it is a stock, it does have all the stock elements and the stock examples. Um, it is a French example as well, so you will only, unless you speak medieval French, you're only going to find it in translation. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, Middle English, especially the early Robin Hood stuff, is actually not that difficult. Now that stuff's quite easy to read, even though other outlaw narratives are in Anglo-Norman, like Fuchsvigwarren, Fuchsvigwarren, that's a hard name. <laughs> Just a bit, Yeah. <laughs> That that is kind of inaccessible to us unless you get it in translation. But if it's in Middle English, I think as long as you read it out loud, you'll catch on pretty mm-hmm. quickly. I mean, none of the Robin Hood stories are particularly long either. Um, what is it? The Jest of Robin Hood, I think, is the longest, and you could polish that off in maybe an hour. Yeah, that's several different stories loosely tied together. Yeah. So it's like reading a string of ballads as opposed to one cohesive work. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also... The Romance of East Ash and Monk is also quite short. Yeah. So I think we can wrap up there. All right. Thank you for listening to the One Last Sketch podcast. You can find more articles, news, other episodes on my website, onelastsketch.wordpress.com. You can also find further episodes on Stitcher Radio and on iTunes. Thank you for listening, and if you like this podcast, you